Hi, everyone. Welcome to the MyFit Podcast, hosted by fitness coach, business owner, and CrossFit Games athlete, DJ Hillier. Physical fitness and podcasting are two of his life passions, and his goal is to train, educate, and inspire those who want to improve their general health. These podcasts are designed to help everyone, from the occasional gym member trying to improve their overall wellness, to the fitness enthusiast. The episodes capture a wide spectrum of topics, including training, coaching, nutrition, entrepreneurship, relationships, and mindset. Follow the show on Instagram at The MyFit Podcast and subscribe to his newsletter at djhillier.com. So let's get to it. Hey, everybody. Welcome back. This is DJ Hillier, and you are listening to another edition of the MyFit Podcast. This week on the show, I interview Michael Crowley. Michael is an anthropologist, author, and elite runner clocking in at a 220 marathon. In 2019, Michael was awarded a PhD in anthropology by the University of Edinburgh, followed by getting funded funding for research, living, and training alongside runners in Ethiopia. So for 15 months, Michael immersed himself within the Ethiopian culture in hopes to find out why some of the best runners in our world's history come from a specific location. After learning dozens of running and life lessons, Michael set out to write a book titled Out of Thin Air, Running Wisdom and Magic from Above the Clouds in Ethiopia. And I was first introduced to Michael and this book through a classroom um, platform that I'm involved with, with the training think tank organization. So I need to stop and give credit to those guys for introducing me to this book and being a part of a book club that continues to push me out of my comfort zones and also just teach me things that I definitely wouldn't have learned on my own. So thank you for the training think tank community for putting out classroom content like this one. Uh, I went through the book out of thin air and I really enjoyed it. I love learning from people who have been alongside some of the world's greatest. And that's who Michael is. Michael is an anthropologist who spent 15 months living alongside and just being totally immersed, like I said, into the community. He had to overcome so many things like language barriers, um, travel plans, all these different things that you could imagine when going into a new community. And we talk about a lot of those things today. And we first opened up the conversation with talking about why Ethiopia, why was that the place that he wanted to go to? Then we talked about what was it like transitioning into a new culture. And thankfully, the the people there were very welcoming and they, they kind of grabbed him and put him right into the running community. And he was able to kind of prove himself very early on because he is an elite runner himself. After that, we talked about some of the lessons that he learned while being there for 15 months. One of them is running in groups. Uh, in, in Ethiopia, they are very uh, confident and um, demanding about running in groups is for sport and running alone is for health and just for fun. I think this is a huge life lesson for people to remember that if you want to make it to the next step, the next stage and CrossFit and running or whatever you, you want to do with your life, I think it's really important to surround yourself with people that are better than you consistently and be involved in a group uh, in, in some way or another. I know it's going to look a lot different depending on uh, where you're located or what your sport is, but the importance of training in a group is is so so important. And I think it's something that is reiterated time after time in this book and also in our conversation. After that, we talked about the belief in the process 
in you and your training and how crucial that is. Something that is another reoccurring theme is uh, the guys that he is surrounded by, they believe in the system. They could be doing something that is super counterintuitive, like getting up in the middle of the night, interrupting sleep and going on a long run or doing something, training through sickness, things like that. And if, to some people, it might be crazy or it might seem counterintuitive, something that wouldn't work well with training, especially when it comes to using technology and pieces like that. But on the contrary, they believe wholeheartedly that what they're doing is the best for them. And having that belief in the process is crucial when it comes to game day. And Michael and I talk a little bit about that in the conversation. After that, we talked about being rationally optimistic and how these people are always looking uh, at the silver lining and always looking towards the next day rather than looking at any sort of a negative training day, injuries, things like that. Everything is spun into an optimistic view. I think it's a great life lesson to take away whether you are an elite runner or not. Then we talked about finding creativity in the mundane. This is a big topic in the book. Michael really credits the Ethiopian runner's success to their ability to find different terrains, mix up running, do zigzag runnings, a uh, high tempo, low tempo. There's just so many different ways they go about making uh, the what would most people would think is a very mundane um, activity in running. They make it very uh, joyful, fun, and that creates a, a happy environment. It also has uh, credited to a lot of longevity when it comes to the runners in Ethiopia. After that, we talked about the importance of having a race or event to work towards. And then we closed down by talking about some tips that Michael would give to runners who just want to go to the next level, whether you're a bad runner and you want to become a good runner or good runner to great runner. What are some tips that you can take away? If you guys are interested in hearing more from Michael, you can follow him on Twitter at MPH Crawley, but I definitely would recommend checking out his book. It's a fun book, whether you are an elite runner, a runner, or just somebody that enjoys learning from people that have been surrounded by the greats in this world. I recommend checking out his book out of thin air. Also, if you haven't yet, guys, check out Legends Clothing Apparel. It's the best workout attire that you can find. The shorts are the best. Uh, my favorite is the Luca HD shorts, super thin. You guys will love them. If you do decide to grab a pair, make sure to type in MyFit15 when you check out and you receive 15% off of your purchase. All right. Without further ado, let's get to this fun episode with Michael Crowley. Let's go. Michael Crowley, welcome to the MyFit podcast, man. How are you today? Good. Thanks. How are you doing? Doing awesome. I'm excited to get after this uh, conversation. I recently read your book out of thin air. And since then, I've been, I don't know if the word is studying, but watching a lot of running documentaries. I think probably the most famous one is the Breaking Two Marathon um, documentary on Netflix talking about the runner from Kenya, who is an amazing, legendary runner. Uh, his name is escaping me right now, but just a guy that is uh, an incredible runner and also what the running lifestyle is like in those parts of the world. And you got to live that firsthand. So tell me a little bit about what was your journey like, Michael? We're going to get into the, the ins and the outs here, but maybe first let's start with why did you want to go to Ethiopia for 15 months? What kind of started that genesis? What started that idea? Sure. Um, so basically I had this sense that um, we often talk about kind of East African running, um, I guess, uh, and we lump together people from Ethiopia and, and people from Kenya and people from Uganda as this kind of one homogenous group. Um, and what I realized that was that a lot of the time when people talk about East African running, really what they, they mean is Kenyan running, because we know a lot more about Kenyan running. Um, like you gave the example just there of the 
uh, documentary about Eliud Kipchoge, it's easier to go over to, to Kenya to do research because people speak English. Um, and, you know, most of the runners are based in a couple of different places. It's kind of easy to easier to get access. And so what I was interested in was trying to explore what might be unique about Ethiopian uh, running culture. No one had written about it much um, before. So I set off to kind of learn the language and embed myself within, within a group of athletes over there. Um, and I was interested in, yeah, just trying to, trying to work out what was unique about that particular um, running culture, basically. I think it's important to note before we dive in is that you're an elite runner yourself. Can you take a second to kind of brag about, you know, what, what type of running you do and how you're able to kind of, you know, fit in with a very much uh, elite crew of runners? Yeah, sure. So, I mean, I suppose what, what counts as elite is, is always kind of a relative term, I suppose. But sure. I went from being, you know, in, in Scotland where I was living, um, I was eligible for, to run for Scotland. I ran for Scotland a few times in cross country and road running also run for Great Britain, uh, run a 220 marathon. Um, so I went from being, you know, one of the better runners in Scotland to going over to Ethiopia and being, you know, really mu very much one of the worst runners in Ethiopia in terms of people taking it seriously. Um, so that was an interesting shift in terms of my own uh, kind of experience. Um, and it was really kind of valuable, interesting running with people who were, who were so much better than me, but also uh, kind of difficult because, you know, there's very strong belief in group training over there. Um, but I could obviously only keep up for a certain amount of time <laughs> on runs before, especially with the altitude and things like that. So it was, um, yeah, it was an interesting transition going over. Before you left, Michael, what, what were some things that made you nervous? Were, was there, was there anything that made you nervous before you got on that flight, not knowing kind of what was in your near future? Um, I mean, I was, I was nervous to try about whether I was going to actually be kind of welcomed into a training group, I guess. Um, you know, anthropologists are always, you, you kind of, you need to have people um, be happy with you doing the research you're doing, obviously. And uh, I wasn't sure how that would go. It turned out it was actually really easy. So I went to the, the forest the first day that I was there, um, started jogging and immediately someone came and literally just kind of grabbed me <laughs> and took me into this group of runners. Um, so it was, it was really just this really organic process in the end in terms of meeting people. Um, and that was you know, they said to me on that very first run, um, you can't transform yourself as an athlete if you train on your own. You've got to be with a group. And that's what they, that was kind of something that they came up again and again. Um, to be transformed, you have to run with other people is what they said. So there was this sense that running was a social activity. And from that point onwards, basically, I always had people to run with and, and people to interview about their running and people were very happy to talk to me about it. So um, that was the main thing I was nervous about. And it turned out I didn't need to be nervous. Awesome. I didn't know before I went about the kind of hyenas and things like that that, <laughs> that you tend to encounter in the forest, but um, they, they didn't tell yeah, you that, huh? <laughs> as long as you're with other people, that didn't seem to be a problem. <laughs> That's funny. And did you know beforehand that you were going to spend 15 months there? And if so, why was why was 15 the number? Uh, so I had uh, funding for my PhD um, for uh, basically four years. So I had a, a year kind of preparing to do the field work, and then um, I needed time afterwards to write both the PhD thesis, which I wrote first, and then the book um, after that. So I kind of, it was the, the most time I could afford to be there in, whilst also writing up in time to not run out of money, essentially. Um, Very cool. Yeah. 
And it seems from just watching some YouTube stuff and also reading your book that running is, like you said, it's a communal thing. Everybody does it out there. Um, I don't know what else to compare it to here in America, but it's something that just everybody participates in from an early age. Can you talk a little bit about when you go there? What Maybe why is it such a communal thing? Why is it running? Um, and why do so many people partake in it? Um. I think in some ways, there's not that many people running. If you, th- if you think about overall numbers, right? Okay. It's actually, um, there'd be more people running regularly in the United States as a proportion of the population. It's just that the people who do it, do it as a job, right? So sure. it's like, they're basically, um, people say you can't be a runner and have a full-time job. You have to kind of give it all of your attention if you're going to run. Um, and so therefore, the people who are doing it are treating it as um as a job and as a vocation so they um they all train incredibly hard and have this kind of culture of training hard but um i guess a lot of now there are so many training camps in rural areas and things that you that most kids will be exposed to running in some way and so the ones that are good at it will you know join a club or be a part of a training camp and they are you know it's a system where they they tend to find the talented people and channel them into running as opposed to any other sport, I suppose, in Ethiopia. That's, that would be the quite a big difference, I suppose, to, to the US where a lot of ta- the most talented athletes are channeled into things like um, American football and, and other sports. It's like the sport that people know that um, Ethiopians can excel at, I suppose. Right. So yeah. do you think a lot of the athletes do start early? I think some of the stories that we hear in, in the United States maybe is that they had to they had to run to school a certain distance and that kind of sprung their passion and inspiration to become a runner. Was that apparent in your time in Ethiopia as well, where they were forced to run from place to place at an early age and it kind of brought them into the sport of running? Yeah, I think for some people, uh, it actually was quite variable between different people. So some people were kind of running five kilometers to school in the morning, running home five kilometers for lunch, then back to school and then back home again in the evening. So they're doing 20K a day as you know just out of necessity essentially mm-hmm. but then um i talked to the coach of kenanisa bekele who's one of the, the most famous ethiopian runners and his house was literally opposite the school that he went to so he he wasn't doing that but what people said was that the vast majority of the top athletes um in ethiopia and i'm sure that the same is true in kenya grew up basically on farms um and they were doing you know relatively hard physical work from a very young age um, and that that kind of, and that's not necessarily running, but it's like lifting heavy things, you know, being out for long periods of time with, um, with a herd of goats or something like that. And it's, it, people said, you know, that's not training, but it's putting you in a position where your body is stronger before you start training than the average, um, person in most parts of the world, I guess. Yeah. You talked about that in your book and I thought that was so cool how you basically said or, or quoted somebody that said that the runners are good runners before they start running and it's more of an yeah. emotional or an upbringing. Can you just talk or elaborate a little bit more on, on what that means? Uh, yeah. I mean, I think a lot of people, um, so there's the, most of the people who would get into running are from, from these kind of rural backgrounds, as I said, where um, they running is seen as a, as a way of making a decent amount of money and you know for people who would ne- otherwise not necessarily have an opportunity to do that so people believe quite strongly in 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 that but then there's also this sense that people don't really believe in talent in the way that i think we often do like or sports scientists would um people believe that you had to you had to train in a way that was 
what they refer to as training properly as opposed to training hard. So like doing things sensibly, um, allowing yourself enough time for recovery, um, kind of approaching things with kind of patience and um, sort of consistency, I suppose. And that was like, um, that was seen as much more important than any kind of idea about natural talent. So they talked about adaptation to training as something that anyone could do if they gave themselves the time, if they ate the right food, if they get, had enough sleep and all that kind of stuff. So I think there's this sense that, that for most of the young people who start running, they believe that there is like something inside themselves in terms of like running ability. Um, and that, that just needs to be unleashed through doing the right things. So there's not less of this kind of anxiety about not being talented enough or, or things like that, that we might have. Yeah, it brings me back to the quote of hard work beats talent when talent doesn't work hard. And I'm curious, do, mm. is the thought, is that thought something that they would maybe say, obviously in different in different languages, but is it more of the idea of that? We don't really care about genetics. We don't really care about your upbringing or the cards that you were dealt that you say, and instead of, instead, it's more like, how hard can you work and how, how quickly can you adapt and how committed are you to the process? Yeah, absolutely. And it's also about knowing, it's, a, it's about training you know, obviously they train really hard. Um, they run a huge volume every week. There's three really hard sessions, but they also, they're also very attentive to the kind of limits of what, of how hard you can train. Right. So that's why they don't refer to training hard necessarily, but they, they would say badem Sarah, which means, uh, work or train properly. So like, just do it like, you know, it's not so much about, I mean, obviously it's hard, but you need to, you also need to be, um, sensible not to push beyond your limits because they they talked a lot about you know people as they said burning themselves up by doing too much so yeah it's about finding that line basically that which can, which can be hard to do i would imagine especially if you're running in a group of and if we can just paint a picture michael what when you're running in groups how many people are you running with uh so normally it'd be about uh 25 men and then 25 women so you've got kind of a big bus uh that would drive out to training uh three mornings a week and then yeah the group would be set quite it's quite a specific pace to run at normally by the coach and then you'd have a series of people who were in charge of making sure that the pace was right so they would he would kind of the coach would tell people um you know, two people would be pacing the first 5k and then another two people would take over. And that was seen mm -hmm. as like an important kind of responsibility, uh, to the group. But yeah, you'd have, um, normally on like a long run, two single file lines of about 12 people in each line, uh, running in kind of quite tight formation, um, down the road. That's kind of what it looked like. Were there any challenges with group running? Uh, something that maybe comes to my mind is if somebody starts to fall off or can't keep up with paces, I'm not an elite runner by any means. So I could be just kind of uh, shooting at the barrel here and guessing, but what are some of the challenges that come with group running? Uh, so basically it wasn't so much people dropping off because that used to happen all the time, especially with me. I would, you know, I'd be able to keep up for a certain amount of time. The bus would come, would follow the run. So the bus would stop every 5k and hand out, um, the guys would hand out water bottles and things. And if you dropped off, it was, it was okay. You just kind of got on the bus a lot of the time. <laughs> so that wasn't so much of a problem. What was a problem was that the coach, as I said, was quite keen on people running in a controlled way with the pace that he told them to go. And sometimes people would push beyond that pace and go too fast. Mm -hmm. And that would cause tension between the athletes because especially, you know, if somebody had a race coming up um, and somebody else was pushing too hard in training, they would say that's, 
that's detrimental to me preparing for my race because you're making me expend too much energy here and things like that. So there was a tension between like running is an interesting sport because you've got, you compete alone, but most people train in these, most people in Ethiopia and Kenya train in a group. So you've got kind of, um, yeah, there's a tension between this kind of sense of as an individual sport and then it's kind of a group sport in some ways, but then on race day, you're on your own and it's, you know, a couple of people making tens of thousands of dollars, sometimes a hundreds of hundred thousands of dollars. And then some, somebody making nothing who's only like 10 seconds behind. So it's, a, yeah, it's a tricky tension sometimes. That's super fascinating to me because so in a lot of ways, the group model is motivating and it helps each other uh, maybe on days when you don't want to run and things like that. But also there's a point of no return where we're pushing ourselves too hard. So sometimes having that group, might you might think it's to push each other harder, but in a lot of ways, Michael, it's probably to keep each other in check and maybe even slow each other down a little bit. Absolutely. Yeah, I think so. I think especially... Uh, well, one day a week on a Wednesday morning, we do speed training where the coach said, this is like about learning how to compete. And I want you to kind of, mm. you know, kick chunks out of each other and try and race and try and set, try and drop people basically. Um, and that was a particular skill that you had to learn. But then on the other runs, the, uh, yeah, as you say, like a big function of the group is actually to, to put people who he saw as being responsible and sensible in charge of setting the pace as a way of holding some of the other athletes back and making sure that, so the group is kind of a way of um, kind of an insurance against people going crazy and doing too much. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I don't, I don't want to jump ahead too much for the listeners that haven't read the book. So let's dial it back here a little bit, Michael, T- tell me a little bit about what is the, what does the week look like? Or maybe it'd be easier. Just tell me like, what does a day look like uh, from waking up and running and, and how, how, you know, walk me through kind of the story of uh, the framework of a, a day or a week of running in Ethiopia at an elite level. Uh, sure. So um, Ethiopia is like bang on the equator, which means that um, it's basically dawn at 6 a.m. every day. And people tend to get up and run sort of at six. Um, so we'd either get a bus um, to to get us somewhere to run by six, which would mean getting up at kind of 4.30 in the morning and getting on a bus. Or we'd just get up and go to the forest for six o'clock. So the sun would be coming up and we'd start running then. Um, it'd be basically two runs every day. So one run in the morning and then another run about four o'clock in the afternoon. Um, and then, as I said, like, um, uh, three times a week we'd, we'd go on the bus and that was to go to somewhere specific. Um, so like sometimes we'd go to Entoto, which was the mountain, um, up to about 3,200 meters above sea level. Um, when we wanted to kind of run slowly and, and kind of develop aerobic um, systems by being somewhere where there's very little oxygen. And then other days we drive right down to a place called Akaki, which was like a thousand meters lower, much hotter. Um, and that would be where we would go to run quick. Um, so basically the week, um, it was more or less two runs a day, six days a week. Um, and then this balance between kind of three very intense, very hard sessions, and then the rest of the running being really quite easy and sort of deliberately, um, recuperative so i think it was like basically they they had this very strong sense of wanting to have um the hard days really hard and the easy days really easy and and make sure that 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 was a distinction that was maintained um which i think is another thing that's quite important because a lot of the time when i'm running here the the effort seems to kind of even out across the runs a lot more um there's less of a distinction there in, in that way 
Yeah, I, th- I heard a story that um, remind me of the guy's name from Kenya. That's the legendary runner. I always forget. Uh, Kipchoge. Kipchoge. Ellie. Yeah, I, he- I heard that on his. So he so he runs like four four and a half minute miles, whatever it may be. But on his slow days, it's more than like. 10 to 12 minute miles which is very like you know for for the for the mortal immortal people like us we're like oh that doesn't seem very difficult and it's not supposed to be difficult especially for a guy like that he could probably almost walk that speed tell me about what is the importance or what did you learn about the importance of being able to slow down and have those two separate speeds rather than just going the same speed all the time yeah so um they a lot of the rain that we did in the forest um around where we lived which was very kind of hilly uh, and very densely packed with eucalyptus trees. Um, that running was sometimes just described as kind of being a form of massage more than anything else. Mm. So it was, to, it was kind of um, just to recuperate, allow your muscles to, to kind of relax. Um, so people would deliberately run in this kind of zigzagging way, um, deliberately run on a camber so that, so that your legs are at a different angle all the, t- uh, you know, all the time so that you're not kind of putting the stress on this, on your, on your muscles and joints in exactly the same way the whole time. So that, that kind of running was very much about, um, about going slowly. And sometimes people would, you know, GPS watches actually weren't very common when I first started out. Um, but they started to, people started to acquire them towards the end of field work. And sometimes people would use the GPS to run as slowly as possible. They mm-hmm. would like run and see how slowly they could do a kilometer in the forest. Um, and that just, that was interesting to me because I can't imagine that's kind of the opposite of the way that we often use these things. Um, which is interesting. It is interesting. And I think uh, one of my favorite quotes is when you basically said was I was surrounded or, you know, I was a, kind of a sports psychologist surrounded by a lot of people who have never heard about sports psychology before. And it made me laugh out loud because I think it's so true that uh, down there, they're not focused on, on the watch or the GPS or how the body's feeling or your whoop or things like that. All the technology that maybe we're, maybe obsessed with in this part of the world. Tell me a little bit about why was that so shocking to you? And also how does that play a role in their success? Um, but I think that the interesting thing is that like, um, not so much that they don't know about sports psychology. They haven't read much sports psychology, obviously, but they, they have their own sports psychology that is kind of developed in, you know, in Ethiopia without necessarily being referred to in that way. So I think it's about like recognizing the expertise that has been developed in Ethiopia um, since 1960 when um, first Ethiopian athlete won the Olympic marathon. Um, it's kind of been passed on mm. organically between people um, and learned by kind of copying other people and doing things. So I think what I was, what I always argue is that there is a very specifically kind of Ethiopian running expertise and that they would therefore, when they come across things that are introduced by sports scientists or, uh, you know, GPS watches and these kinds of technologies, they'll take them on, but they'll take them with a pinch of salt and use them sometimes, not use them other times and kind of um, adopt them in their own way and, uh, and kind of, yeah, adapt them to their own purposes, I suppose. So two runs a day, we have fast runs, slow runs, we're in all these different types of uh, terrains. How long, Michael, did it take for your body to adapt? And were there days and times where you were just sore as hell? (laughs) Yes. Uh, So I was like, because I had, I I came, I was back at sea level a couple of times within that 15 months where I went to races with athletes or came back to visit family or or things like that. Um, And so it was always when I went back to altitudes it would be like two or three weeks to adapt to the thin air again. Um, and then I'd gradually get stronger. Um, I guess 
Yeah, I mean, what I had to do was kind of get a balance between being there as a researcher um, and trying to observe as much of the running as I could by being there in, in the group and, and kind of trying to keep up with people who are a lot faster than me. And then also in, you know, sort of being there as an athlete as well and trying to, trying to continue to do my own training. But um, in the end, what I realized was that to, to be a good researcher, I had to just kind of do, you know, overtrain in, in many ways in order to get the, the kinds of, um, uh, have the kinds of experiences that I wanted to be able to write about. Um, so sometimes it was detrimental, I think, to my own running in that I was, as you say, just kind of exhausted <laughs> a lot of the right. time. One of the things I really pulled out from uh, the people that you were surrounding yourself with was just belief. They had such strong belief that what they were doing was the right thing. One of the quotes that that I pulled out was this said, quote, many of the runners in the forest I've been training in for the last couple of weeks have already spoken in hushed tones about the mountain. This place is 3,800 meters, Mesra tells me. I'm not convinced it's quite that high, I tell him. In the end, the exact altitude isn't that important. The belief in the altitude is, though. Why is belief so important for success when it comes to sports? Um, well, I think, for, I mean, for me, I think that probably the altitude does play a kind of physiological role as well. But I think it's like if you if you go into a race thinking that you've been training somewhere higher than anyone else has trained, then you're already you already have an advantage on the start line. And I think they would deliberately cultivate this sense of belief. So when we did the, um, uh, we would get up sometimes at two o'clock in the morning and go and run up and down a particular hill in the dark, and then go back home and go to bed. And from you know from a logical kind of I don't know rational sports scientific standpoint, that's probably not a particularly good way to train because you're interrupting sleep. <laughs> you do, but like I think for them they would do that because they can then go and stand on a start line and think I bet no one else was doing hill reps at two in the morning, mm. and therefore have this kind of confidence that they've cultivated from being able to do that. So um, I think for what, one of the things I found interesting was that when I ran races in Ethiopia, it felt like everyone on the start line had a feeling that they might be able to win the race, <laughs> you know, and that that was, so everyone set off as if they were going to be in the lead group and potentially winning the race in a way that I think, you know, if you stand on the start line of a cross country race, um, in the UK or in, in, the, in the States, most people have got a, a sense of where they're going to finish roughly. You know, mm -hmm. they're thinking, well, maybe I can finish in the top 50. I think for you know, mo most of these guys that I knew were thinking, you know, well, you know, why not? Why not me? Why couldn't I win it? So that's I think that that does have a particular kind of power. Yeah, that's such a great lesson, too. And I think it goes with a line with a lot of different sports where you could have a very sub optimal training environment or um, training structure, training program design. But if you believe in it, if you believe this is the right thing for you to do, you believe in your coach, you believe in the path, that self-belief goes far beyond what the work you're actually putting in. It, or, or it can, I should say, not always, but it certainly can have a huge role in your result in your race. Yeah, absolutely. And that you said, you mentioned like belief in the coach. And I think that's like, that's kind of stronger in Ethiopia than, than in a lot of places. So there's it, it, in kind of Amhara culture, the ethnic group of people that I was working with most of the time, there's a very strong sense of hierarchy in society. Mm -hmm. So if you're going to work with a coach, that's somebody who is like, who you're going to respect. You're going to do what they say without questioning it. You're going to, you know, listen to what they, they tell you in silence and then do it. <laughs> and so there's a sense that, and that's like in some ways difficult for the coaches, I think, because, um, 
because of the you know the belief that the coach is always right means that when athletes run badly they would put more of that on the coach and see that as the coach's responsibility in many ways mm. um but it also means that when they do when they do believe in a coach they really believe in them you know there's like a really strong sense of trust right the other thing I picked up on, and I think it's a good life lesson, not just for runners, but for just everybody else, is that the people you surround yourself with, Michael, were rationally optimistic. I felt like no matter what happened, it was always a part of the process. The idea was marginal gains. It was day after day, not really far into the future. It's just focusing on the right now. So many different parallels and things that you can unpack for for just um, you know average people's lives, if you will, that aren't competing at the highest level. But talk to me about how did you see them be rationally optimistic on a day-to-day perspective? Um, on a day-to-day perspective, I think because because of the way that the, the sport is kind of structured, it is often uh, um, they would have to wait a long time to get a race, and sometimes because the, the races are organised usually by managers who live in the states or who live in Europe, so they would have to be quite open-minded and flexible about what was going on. Mm-hmm. So they would have have the, there was definitely this sense that people thought you know, to become an elite runner, it ta- it's, it's not going to happen in a year. It's, this is like a process that is going to take five years, maybe even 10 years. And so the most important attributes you can have are kind of patience and willingness to just, to just work hard day, on, day in and day out. But also this sense that you never know when a race might actually come your way. Mm. So, you know, suddenly you might have a manager contact you and say, do you want to run this marathon in China in three weeks? So you've got to be ready for that opportunity to arise as well. So there's this sense that you kind of need to always be um, in this state of readiness, but also in this state of acceptance that it might not happen, <laughs> I guess, which is kind of a difficult place to be in some ways. But um, I think learning to, to be like that uh, is, is helpful for them. How would runners respond when and if they had a bad day? Uh, well, they would often rationalize that in terms of, um, they would talk about that in terms of their religious beliefs a lot of the time. So most Ethiopian Orthodox Christians um, have a sense that God has a kind of larger plan for them. So there would be this. So often, I would be surprised by the lack of disappointment when somebody ran badly, and they would often say, "Well, you know, it was it was not my day today. You know, God maybe has this longer term plan." Um, and, and me doing well today wouldn't have fitted in with that. So I just have to be patient and keep doing what I'm doing and hopefully it'll pay off in the, in the long term. So people were, were really, yeah, it, it, especially in a context where peop- where winning a, a race has the ability to change people's lives so radically, I was amazed by how good people were at rationalizing stuff when it didn't go right. Yeah, that's, that's so true, but that's probably a huge component to why they're so successful. Would you agree, Michael? Yeah, I think so. Yeah. I mean, it also, it, it means that people, um, people keep running for a long time after you would have thought maybe they would have given up. <laughs> and, and some of those people actually do, do have breakthroughs really late in their career when you wouldn't necessarily expect it. So, um, yeah, that ability to just, just keep, keep showing up basically and keep, keep going, keep doing what you're doing every day and, and believing in that process, I think is really important for people. Yeah, that's such a that's such a great reminder that it's it is about the process. Not every day is going to be uh, a great day, especially when you're an elite athlete. I'm sure that they had days where either they fell off pace or they got injured or something's happened. Not every day is going to be the best day um, when it comes to running. Yeah, totally, exactly. And the coach would say that all the time. You know, the the most important thing was that people came to training three to three times a week, 
not that they because sometimes what people would do is they would skip training sessions in order to then come and absolutely like um you know kind of smash the next session oh and okay. he would be like that's not what we want you to do because people would be trying to impress the coach in order to be sent a sent abroad for a race or something like that but um it was it was the the athletes who were sent abroad to run were the ones that showed up three times a week and did things in a way that was measured and was um was kind of sensible in the eyes of the coach i guess Mm, very cool the other life lesson i pulled out and it's a big one is talking about the the mundane needs creativity and you talked about this a lot and they represented really well talking about running in different environments and we talked about a little bit using different terrains and i think we naturally like and gravitate towards that straight and narrow path. And you could say this in running and also in life lessons where we just want things to be very predictable and straight down the road. But the variety is what makes athletes curious and and agile and also just creates a more joyful environment. And again, I'm pulling from two different areas here, running and also just life in general. But talk to me about why, if you agree with that statement, the mundane needs creativity. Um, yeah, absolutely. I think, I mean, uh, coach Messeret, who I write a lot about in the book, he even said to the athletes, you know, there's no, um, at least with footballers, you've got a ball to chase <laughs> with running. It's kind of, it has the, has the, um, ability to get incre- incredibly boring if you allow it to. So I, I found that interesting because I think a lot of the time with kind of high performance sport, we think of it as, as needing to be become boring because it needs to be measured and it needs to, um, it, you know, you're spending a lot of time doing testing and in the lab and in the gym and things like that, they seemed very conscious of the fact that to be successful, they had to keep it interesting and keep it creative and, and, and come up with things that were going to make things uh, more interesting. So they would plan training sessions like a week in advance. Sometimes they would go to one of their friend's houses to stay over the night before in order to run up and down a particular hill because it was like associated with a famous runner. Um, things like that, just basically like creating meaning behind the training sessions that doesn't isn't necessarily uh immediately obvious um and then things like getting up and running in the night or running deliberately into a place of the fo- in the forest where a lot of hyenas are in order to just kind of I, I don't know have some kind of extra uh stimulus or sense of excitement um and i i found it interesting how how conscious they were of, of deliberately making things more interesting um and and how important they, they saw that and now, and now that you're back home, Michael, is this something that you've implemented with your training? Uh, I try to, although I've been, I, um, since starting a new job, I find I've not got that much time to sure. train. And when you're kind of pressured for time, you end up going for the boring sessions that are right. over within an hour, I think a lot of the time. But I do try to um, try to mix things up a lot more in terms of the surfaces that I run on nowadays. Um, mm-hmm. So one of the things, like the, um, the marathon runners in Ethiopia, they run on the road once a week and that's it. Oh, wow. Uh, so a lot, most of the time they're running more closely resembles what we would describe as kind of trail running than road running. So that's one thing I learned. I kind of keep off the roads, try and run in the forests, try and run on like golf courses, uh, sort of mix up um, the terrains as much as possible. Um, yeah. And I think that's, um, it's just really important to try to, yeah, keep things as interesting as possible. And remember that, you know, even the best runners in the world are trying to make this fun. So it should always be fun, first and foremost, I guess. Totally. And my mind goes, when you say forests and golf courses and things like that, my mind first goes to maybe it's easier on your joints, but you're also, you're talking more, it's actually easier on my mind and more joyful for my mind. Is it, is it a little bit of both, Michael, or how do you, how do you relate the two when it comes to different surfaces? 
Uh, yeah, it's it's both. I mean, it is definitely to do with injury prevention that they try to get this variety of ways of moving. Um, but then they would usually in the forest, you'd have one person leading a run and the other people following. Um, and there's some photos in the middle of the book of the kind of um, the trees and then the, the, the paths between the trees that are kind of just these endless crisscrossing patterns. So rather than having you know, one trail that goes through a forest like you might see in, in the States or in, um, in Europe. You've got all these paths that have been created by the runners just constantly trying to think of new ways of running in the same bit of forest. Mm. So you would be constant. It, it's kind of like follow my leader when, you, when you're doing a run there, that somebody is, is creating this new route and you're trying to keep up with them. Um, and that is, yeah, that's about keeping things interesting as much as it's about preventing injury, I think. Yeah. What a, what a great piece of advice, man. I think about a lot of times when in the CrossFit world, when people burn out, it's mostly because they're not having fun anymore and they feel like they're just doing the same thing over and over again. And even small ways of, like you said, getting it like for you, it was getting up in the middle of the night and running. And I'm not sure everybody is going to be down with that idea, but just something to mix it up. Maybe it's training with a new group, training with a new environment, training at a different time of the day. It doesn't have to be something drastic, but just little things every single day, um, I think can create a lot of longevity and just joy bringing joy back to what you're doing yeah and I, I guess like a lot of the time with crossfit that's that's something that is kind of built into it right that you turn yes. from what i've only i've been to a few crossfit sessions and it seemed like you turn up you don't know what's going to happen until you get there and then it's like then you find out what the session is um and that that does try that keeps things new and it's never quite the same as far as i know which i think is uh is actually a really healthy way of of doing exercise compared with uh, just running constantly the whole time in a lot, in a lot of ways. Absolutely. Um, another thing I thought that was really cool from the book was talking about how putting goals or, or races or there's always something on the horizon and that helps to motivate them, create the joy. I resonate with this so much because as a CrossFit athlete, I my training is much better. I'm much more committed and dialed in when I know something is on the horizon. Uh, the mm. quote I pulled out was exercise without excitement, without competition or danger or purpose didn't strengthen the body, but simply wore it out. The race on the horizon maintains the vitality of the runner, giving all the hours of work a purpose. Talk to me a little bit about that quote. Uh, so I think that that's a sort of paraphrased Norman Mailer quote from his book about Muhammad Ali. So Muhammad Ali always like said, you know, you can't train without a fight. And if you do, it's like, you, it's, almost, it's almost bad for you to do that because you're just wearing your body out for no reason. And so it's like this very clear connection between having a competition in mind and doing, doing the exercise. Um, and that's, I think they would have, they would have seen it like that. They saw it as a, as a really long-term process, but they wanted to have, um, they wanted to have races within, within Ethiopia that they could always aim towards, I think. Um, and I mean, I found that, I think it's one, that's been one of the really hard things about lockdown has been trying to work out what to do training wise when there's totally. nothing and you don't know when it's going to happen. Right. So. Um, you kind of don't know whether to just tick over with your training or whether to train hard and hope that something's going to come up. Um, but, uh, but yeah, they, they thought competitions were really important. The other part I really enjoyed hearing was the idea of if you're, yeah, training alone is just for health to be changed. You have to run with others. You need to adapt to their pace, not your own. This was very enlightening for me, especially when you talk about the idea of training is just for health. And those are two separate things. Can you unpack that for me? Yeah. I mean, I think this is like a broader part of kind of Ethiopian culture that you would never 
for example, if you sat in a restaurant eating a meal on your own, that would be seen as really antisocial. <laughs> and so it's like it's seen as deeply antisocial to run on your own. Um, and that's because of kind of beliefs about um, yeah, that things should be collective, I guess. Success is this thing that is, is produced collectively. Um, and they also they kind of believed in um, that energy was kind of shared between people, it was a lot more fluid than we might see it as. So the other thing about running in the group was that they really thought that in a group you can just run so much faster for, for less energy expenditure. So it was, it was like to do with kind of camaraderie and, and being with people that you, that you knew and respected and things, but it was also like a, a physiological thing that they, they genuinely thought that it would make them run quicker if they were in, within a group environment. So, um, yeah. Would you find people, would people run by themselves? Is, was that a thing? Uh, very rarely, um, people would just, people would generally run together, um, mm -hmm. pretty much all the time. Unless sometimes in, well, one of the things that's interesting is actually nowadays when with the very wealthy athletes who have their own cars and are able to go other places for training, um, sometimes because people now have GPS watches and they can see what pace they're running for a particular effort, the introduction of that technology has actually also lent to people training more on their own because they they're like, well, if I go to, if I drive to this place, I'll be able to, to do more running for less effort and it will maybe, you know, maybe I'll get an advantage over other people. So that's one interesting thing about the introduction of, of these technologies. It does actually change the practices of training a little bit. Mm -hmm. it, is um, it is interesting. If you think about too, like if they're all competitive and they all, uh, let's say these people could go to the same race together at one time, at one point they're going to be competitors at other times, they're training partners. Those can, kind of go back and forth a little bit as well. You talked about one person wanting to push the pace and, 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 and throwing off another person in training, but those two ideas could be very different. So I could imagine some people might want to train by themselves because they don't want to train with their competitors, but to mm -hmm. them, they don't see it that way, right? Uh, they wouldn't normally, they would see it as very important to do the group training because you need to be able to, they, they would see it like the, rather than measuring themselves against the watch, they would see it as far more important to measure themselves against other people, against right. their peers, against people that they know are good. So they, they see that as very important. But the, what, would, what normally happens is that um, the athletes are all represented by, the athletes in one group would be represented by one manager. So the, the athletes I write about represented by um, an agency called Moyo Sports, which is based in Edinburgh. Um, and he would normally be quite careful about sending, not sending the same athletes from the same group to the same race for that reason, mm -hmm. just because you want to, you don't want to introduce too much competition into the training environment. You want to make sure that they, they, uh, um, that that remains kind of cohesive and that people are on good terms with each other. So you don't necessarily want them to be running the same race. It does sometimes happen, but they try to avoid it. And going back to the health versus sport idea, I think too, it's a great reminder, Michael, that if you do want to be elite or make it to kind of a next level, you need to be surrounded by people who are like-minded at a similar level, people that can push you. It just goes back to that group model, like you were talking about in the very beginning of if that is your goal of going the sport route, then you need to surround yourself with those people. And then I'd also say, contrary on the other side, if that's not your goal, maybe if you just want to be, it's more of a leisure activity, it's just more for fun, then it is probably more okay to run by yourself and and that's a different avenue but it does paint a picture of what those two different things look like if you want to make it to the top you got to be able to surround yourself with people that are like-minded yeah and i think that's um that's not just in ethiopia that's like if you look at the elite running in in the states you've got a series of very defined professional groups um with 
kind of the support systems around them and that's where you go if you want to um if you want to get really good but then for somebody like like me when i'm just enjoying my running it's like i quite like running on my own <laughs> some of the time so um i think it's yeah but I, but I do think to to get to that level you well the ethiopian runners would definitely believe in needing to be surrounded by people even if it was sometimes even if like there was tension there sometimes and it was you know the relationships could be difficult to manage it was still a necessary thing in order to to get to the top basically mm-hmm. Talk to me a little bit about the character of the people that you were around. You mentioned the story of when you got there, people just kind of grabbed you and threw you in like, let's go. Uh, you're a part of our crew now. I remember watching the Breaking 2 documentary with Kim Chogi. And after he was more famous than ever, and he broke this two-hour marathon, all these he's, he's fame and fortune, he still goes back and lives with the people that he lives with in his hut. He's a millionaire. He's just kind of an everyday guy. He's, yes, he's got the, the nice coat on, but other than that, you watch the documentary and he's just hanging out with his buddies and he's the same person after the race than he was before the race. Can you talk mm-hmm. a little bit about what, what is the character like of the people that you were running with? Um, yeah, I mean, I think with someone like Kipchoge, he's just he found that kind of camp training model that works where you kind of you have a separation and you go to the training camp and that's where you're doing doing your work and actually that's somewhere where um you're far more likely to succeed if you're able to stay humble and still do all the same stuff that you were doing before so he's like he still hauls water up from the well by hand <laughs> he's still like washing kit um and things like that because it's what he's always done and it's always worked for him so i suppose that's um that's yeah that makes sense um and then he does have a nice house that he goes to at the weekends i think that's kind of or like after uh, after a block of training um in ethiopia i think because of like the, the sheer amount of money that can be won in some races for finishing first or second um sometimes when people make a huge amount of money if you go and win two hundred thousand dollars at dubai marathon for example um you are then under a lot of pressure to to redistribute that money to people that you've trained with and things and that wow. can be that that's kind of quite difficult i think for some people so um but for the most part people are people are incredibly friendly and i was amazed at how how welcoming people were for me of you know going into that group and just even though i was obviously not as good a runner as them and they weren't always 100 percent sure why on earth i would want to be there necessarily running when i could have been um in the uk doing probably an easier job um they were like because i was just showing up and doing doing the training with them there was a respect that came from that and they saw me as part of the group i think because i was just willing to to keep keep going and keep showing up um so i think again it's yeah learning how important that is how long did it take to kind of gain their respect michael was it something right away where they're like hey we're happy to have you jump on in or did you kind of have to prove yourself on the first couple of runs for them to be like okay this guy's for real he's a he's an elite runner and uh welcome uh well i mean actually like as an anthropologist one of the easiest ways to study something like sport is to put yourself in the position of an apprentice so because then people teach you about it and tell you about it so um in many ways it was better for me that i was not as strong an athlete as everyone else because it meant they would tell me they would teach me the ethiopian way of doing things and kind of treat me as a beginner even though i'd been running for like you know already 10 years or whatever in the uk Mm -hmm. um so that was really nice but yeah it took a while before I think, yeah, just constantly showing that I was continuing to turn up for training every day um, over a long period of time was what enabled me to build up the trust to learn about some of the things that I wouldn't otherwise have learned about, I think. So as an anthropologist, I think that's the the main strength of of anthropology is that you just learn things that you wouldn't learn through any other kind of research method. Mm -hmm. So, um, 
things like running up and down the hill in the middle of the night. That was something that was happening um, like before, uh, like whilst I was living in the same compound as the runners, uh, they were just doing that in the night without telling me for a while. And then it was only when I like, when they realized that I was like there for real and things that I was invited to go and do that. Yeah. And that was kind of like a, a sort of rite of passage for me um, in terms of, you know, being accepted in the group and things. And from that point onwards, people started treating me differently. So it took a while, but six months, I guess. Yeah, I believe that. That's awesome. So the book is called Out of Thin Air, Running Wisdom and Magic from Above the Clouds in Ethiopia. So out of thin air, I want to think about the altitude. Talk to me a little bit about what was it like running with such high altitude? I could, I mean, thinking about it, my my diaphragm just freezes up. What was that like? And how do you think that carried over into race day or running at sea level? Uh, well, for me, it made a, a very big difference. So I was running about 30 minutes for 10K in the UK before I went out there. And then when I ran, I ran the Great Ethiopian Run um, in Addis at 2,400 meters above sea level, I ran about 34 minutes. So it's like a, it's sort of four minutes difference for me. But for the guys that I was training with, they'd never really been to sea level apart from to run a race. So oh, they wow. didn't know anything any different. So mm. for them, it wasn't... Um, you know, altitude was something that they noticed a lot less. And sometimes they would go from Addis at like 2,400 meters above sea level up to places like um, the training camp I write about in Gondar, which is 2,700, 2,800 meters. So they would go altitude training from altitude to higher altitude sometimes. Wow. Um, but I, yeah, I, I noticed a real difference between about um, running about 2,000 meters above sea level. I would I kind of manage it and I would adapt to that. But if we went up, when we went up to kind of, 3000 meters, I would be just struggling, maybe 40% less oxygen in the air. And you end up just feeling, um, yeah, your body just isn't quite sure what's going on. I think it's the best way to describe it. Um, so yeah, it's like you, you kind of, your body puts on a kind of a braking system where it, um, for me, it was like, I would lock in at about 430 per kilometer and not really be able to go much quicker. Um, and I'd get sort of a bit of a headache and things like that. So it would, <laughs> yeah, it's tough running at altitude. As you look back at those 15 months, Michael, what was, what was the hardest workout? Um, I did a, a 35 kilometer run. I think that was probably the hardest thing. Just like trying to run four minutes per kilometer, um, consistently for 35 K. Um, yeah. And it was, the, what's hard about it is that they, we run on a very undulating road. Um, on kind of a, what was called a coraconch, which is like a rough road gravel surface. And it would be, you know, two kilometers, maybe three kilometers of downhill and then two, three kilometers of uphill. And the coach always wanted us to run it exactly four minutes per kilometer, regardless of the gradient. Oh. <laughs> so you go, it's basically like holding that pace up the hills. And what would happen is that we'd start at dawn, but it would just gradually get pretty hot towards the end of the run. So it would just get harder and harder and harder. Mm. Um, so I think those, those long runs when it started to get hot with the, with the hard, hardest bits. How happy are the runners when they go to a race that is a very flat race? Is it something where it's like confidence shoots through the roof? They're like, man, this is, this is much easier than what we've trained. I could imagine that, you know, when I played college football, one of the things that we, we did was we made practice harder than the game. So we, 
it was conditioning. It was faster. We put, we intentionally put things into our practice plan that would throw a loop on us so that when we got to the game, it'd be much easier. I can imagine that kind of being the same idea. Correct me if I'm wrong, that let's make training harder than the actual race itself when it comes to the terrain so that when it comes to that point, we feel a lot better about it. Yeah. I mean, they, they also said that um, running, we would normally think of like a domestic competition as being a step below international competition. Mm. But in many ways in Ethiopia, running a, running sort of a, t- a 10K race in Addis is you've got way more Ethiopian, top Ethiopian runners to contend with than when you go to a race, when they fly over to the States to run a cherry blossom or something like that, 10 mile race. So <laughs> they would they would see that kind of running uh, races in Ethiopia is being quite a lot harder than running anything that was outside of Ethiopia. Yeah. Um, but yeah, they would talk about flat races as places where, where the good, good times come. So like the kind of, you know, when you can run really quick, um, which is obviously very good if you, um, if you've got sponsorship deals and things like that, that are tied to running fast times. Uh, mm-hmm. so that, yeah, they would, um, they would talk, talk about which races had those kinds of, um, conditions. And the big one that everyone wanted to go to was, uh, Dubai marathon. Cause it, because it had the most prize money, but also because it's just on these massive r- motorways and there's only something like four corner, four turns in the whole race. Oh, wow. So you just like, yeah. So they, they all wanted to go there because it was a place that you could run really, really quick. What was your surrounded with elite athletes? I'm sure you saw a lot of very impressive things. What do you think, Michael, was the most impressive thing you saw from a performance standpoint with your peers? Um. I think watching people do like the sort of Friday morning tempo runs. So that when we, when we did go to the, um, to the road, uh, people would run sort of 4k at race pace and then have a 1k recovery where they would run, you know, it's still really fast. So the, the recovery kilometer would be three thirty, and then they'd be back to race pace, uh, which was like three minutes per kilometer. And people could do that for 25k uh, at altitude. So oh my gosh. Those those are really impressive sessions. The most impressive training session I was told about was um kind of a uh, legendary <laughs> story about um Kenanisa Bekele running a session which was like incredibly simple which was just go to the track and run 16 laps um at a set pace that the coach thought that you could maybe run but maybe couldn't. Um and he ran 16 laps of a of a track in Addis supposedly in 61 seconds each. So that's like 404 per mile. Um, at, at like 2,500 meters above sea level. So he Dude. basically did that session apparently and then stepped off the track and said, I'm going to go and break the 10,000 meter world record now. And then he went to, um, went to Europe and, and did it. So wow. <laughs> it's like that kind of session that was associated with really building athletes confidence, I suppose. Mm-hmm. Wow. Um, so, so yeah, cool. people would, everyone to, like, I heard that story from so many people that that was probably the session that everyone was like, was most amazed by, I guess, in Alice. Wow. That's amazing. Uh, as we close down here, Michael, let's uh, bring it down. So not people that are running 61 second laps here, but just your average runners or people that want to get better at running. What are, th- I don't know, three to five tips that you would give to them to help become better runners? Uh, I'd say um, what we were talking about before about kind of trying to make sure that you have a distinction between your easy running and your hard running. So you, you kind of make sure you take your easy days nice and easy and see them as recovery. Um, I think avoiding the roads as much as possible, trying to, trying to vary surfaces in order to avoid, um, getting injured and, and keep things interesting. 
Uh, and then more broadly, just keep things interesting by trying to do things that make things more interesting. You know, like, like we were talking about kind of being more, having a more creative approach. Um, one of the things I, I learned was that people, people really um, thought that it was important not to neglect speed. So even if you're a distance runner, mm-hmm. a lot of the times they would go for an easy run for an hour and then they would finish it off with doing six kind of 100 meter sprints just to kind of, you know, remind your legs what that feels like. Um, so I guess that's, that's another thing. Um, and then just, yeah, try and surround yourself with people who are into, into the same thing that you're into and, and who kind of um, give you energy for what you're doing. Uh, I guess that's one of the most important things. Those are awesome. I, I did have one more question as a personal trainer myself. I'm curious, what did the, what did the warmups and the cool downs look like, or were, was that not really a thing? Uh, that was, yeah, that was definitely a thing. Um, we would do about 25 minutes of running, starting off incredibly slowly. Um, sort of like, so starting off at like 12 minute per mile pace and then, uh, sort of consistently building up the speed until the end of the 25 minutes they were running at like almost 3.30 per kilometer, maybe three minutes per kilometer. So like a progressive run. And then they would do uh, some straight into some sprints. So like maybe six um, sprints with a jog recovery and then loads of drills. So that's one thing that I didn't expect actually with, with going to Ethiopia was, you know, people do absolutely tons of, of wow. drills before okay. they start running. And that's mm-hmm. to, to make sure that they're running in a really efficient way and that um, they're kind of tuned into to running and, um, in like a strong kind of rhythmic way, I guess. Um, how, how long was yeah. that warm up piece? Would you say before they got up to the actual that training? Would take like an hour. Wow. Sometimes. Okay. Yeah. But then warm down was, was often like very, very little <laughs> warm down. That was interesting as well. I don't know. Uh, they would just, um, sometimes when I went off to warm down jogging at like, um, what for me felt very slow, they'd be like, what's that? Are you, are you warming up again? Uh, so, they, so their warm down was like basically almost walking for like five minutes, but just, you know, very, very short warm down compared with the warm up. Um, surprised me. It's not, not necessarily what people would um, suggest, but that's what they used to do. And is there stretching involved in that too? Or what is that? What does that stretching look like? Stretching after the warm down. Yeah. 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 Hmm. yeah. Very cool. Awesome. Michael, this was fun talking, man. I really enjoyed your book and whether you are a runner or not, it's, it's such a great book with a lot of life lessons and parallels to pull out of it. So if my listeners want to follow you or get the book, where should I point them? Uh, so I'm on Twitter at MPH Crawley. Uh, the book should be, uh, it should be available on Amazon. I think it's hopefully available in lots of other bookshops as well. So, um, yeah, buy it from your local bookshop if you can. I don't know how widely available it is, but that'd be great. Awesome. Well, thank you for taking the time to be on the show today. It was a lot. It was it was a great time just learning from uh, an elite uh, community and one of the most elite, probably the most elite running community in the world. And I just appreciate you taking the time to share your stories, not only with the book, but also with my listeners. Thank you very much. I enjoyed it. Awesome. Guys, we'll see you next week for another episode on the My Fit Podcast.